Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I'm Sophie. I'm Yelly. And this is She's All Fat, the podcast for fat positivity, radical self-love, and chill vibes only. Now in our final season. This episode is a part two of last week's episode on reproductive justice. We're going to talk fertility, advocacy at the doctor, and more with fat fertility coach Nicola Salmon. But first, our news corner. Fat Molly, here in the final season of She's All Fat, our Patreon is more important than ever. We want to make sure that our website and all of our episodes will be available long after our finale. And that's where the money from our Patreon is going, to make sure folks can still listen and access the resources we've compiled all over the years. Not to mention, it's your last chance to get in on all of our Patreon perks. When you join our Patreon at Team Paisley Moomoo or above, that's $7 a month, you get access to our legendary patron-only Facebook group, where people are talking about our weekly obsessions, sitting on our porches, and soup. You'll also get a bonus mini-sode every Friday. This season, we're doing something new and exciting for these minis. (laughs) That's right. We're doing a big sister mailbag. Every week, we're taking your questions about topics like dating and work and answering like the big sisters we both are. This week, we're answering your questions about high school and college. Stick around to the end of the episode for a sneak preve. In conclusion, now's the perfect time to go to patreon.com slash she's all fat pod and make a pledge to help your fave fatties and future fatmily members. All right, before we get to the episode, a quick disclaimer. Nicola and I recorded an interview together, but uh, my half of the audio got messed up, so we ended up with just Nicola's audio. Luckily, Nicola's the expert, so you're going to hear her original audio, and then I, present Sophie, will press pause to chat about what's coming up for me. I'm also going to give you some resources and maybe even play a few clips for you in between listening to Nicola. You could say this episode is a nod to our more reported episodes in season four, just so you know what to expect. Expect greatness. This episode is pregnant with greatness. (laughs) (laughs) Now let's hear it. I sat down in my comfy chair, on my comfy bed really, to interview Nicola Salmon. I knew Nicola from her newsletter, a little fat friendly email with fertility resources and also cute gifts. Fresh out of last week's interview with Dr. May Friedman, I was excited to talk to a real life practitioner of fat positive reproductive healthcare. Our Google Hangout began and I asked Nicola how she got started in the world of fatness and fertility. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Sophie. I'm so grateful. Um, so yeah, my name's Nicola Salmon. 
fat positive fertility coach. Um, and yeah, I am so, so passionate about supporting fat folks who want to get pregnant. So I live just outside of London in the UK, but we are just about to move to North Devon, which is like right in the countryside. So I am super excited about that. Kind of a pandemic post, you know, kind of lifestyle shift. Um, I have two young kids, both boys, both wild. And yeah, so I, I have PCOS myself. That's kind of what got started on this kind of whole roller coaster ride that has been my career. Um, I started off as an acupuncturist. That's kind of what got me into the health side of things, fertility side of things. And obviously my own stuff around being diagnosed with PCOS early, told I wouldn't be able to have kids, you know, like being in a fat body and all the stuff that that meant about how I was treated for my PCOS, which was basically, here's the oral contraceptive pill, lose weight, see you later, which I'm sure is such a common, common story for, for many folks. I'm one of those many folks. One of the reasons I really wanted to talk to Nicola in the first place is that when I was a teenager, before I was even diagnosed with PCOS, I was told by my doctor that I had irregular periods because I was fat and that I was, quote, probably infertile, um, which was not a great thing for a 17-year-old to hear. Okay, back to Nicola. Um, and yeah, it wasn't until I kind of had my breakup with dieting, which was around six years ago now, five, six years ago, that I actually was able to find other folks who were living in fat bodies and were like, yeah, this is great. Let's just carry on being fat and wonderful. And I was like, oh my God, like how the hell do I do that? Like, I want some of that. So I kind of learned all about health at every size, intuitive eating, fat positive, like the movement. And, you know, I just, the more I learned, the more incredibly angry I was about how I'd lived my life so far, but also incredibly grateful that folks were doing this work. And as I was in fertility, as I was like, I'd learned to be a coach by then, I was like, holy crap, like, there is nobody talking about this in the fertility world. It is just diet culture everywhere you turn. And I was like, well, I don't feel qualified, but we've got to start talking about this because it's absolutely not acceptable and it's not serving anyone. At this point, I'm like, okay, cool. Are Nicola and I the same person? Because that's exactly how I felt when starting She's All Fat. <laughs> so as Nicola said, she's a fat fertility coach. I didn't really know what that meant. So Nicola explained. I mean, some of my work is like recording meditations of, of people going like, yes, you can forgive your body. It's okay. Like your body is brilliant just as it is. It's not done anything wrong. It's okay that you've had a tumultuous relationship with it so far. But yeah, like coaching is really just this catch-all term for anybody who's not like a therapist or a dietitian, but like wants to work with people in taking care of themselves, basically. And my fertility coaching has changed so much because of the way that fat folks need to access help and support through their fertility. Um, yeah. Reminder that Nicola didn't go to fat fertility coach PhD school. That doesn't exist. Folks are not actually being trained to support the needs of fat folks, so Nicola had to create and shape her own practice. It's nothing like what I learned, but I've kind of picked up so many bits and pieces from different ways that I've learned. So I've, you know, tried to include some like trauma-informed stuff in my learning and about queer and trans fertility, you know, like all of these pieces that aren't ever like learned or taught in one area. It's about, you know, I've found lots of different pieces that will help specifically fat folks because 
There's so much that we have to unlearn about what we're taught about our bodies and our fertility that's just not true. But society tells us it over and over and over again. So a lot of it is around that. Also figuring out how the hell to look after ourselves and our fertility without diets and weight loss. And also there's a huge piece around advocacy. So how to have those difficult energy draining conversations with our healthcare providers when they're not very forthcoming with the tests and the treatments that we might need. I was surprised how much of Nicola's work is about being a mediator between folks and their doctors and their medical trauma. Even though I have a whole podcast where we've talked about how much fat phobia plays into the care you receive or don't at the doctor, and we've practiced talking to the doctor together, I still have these worries. Is what the doctors have told me real? Is my body going to be quote unquote less good at pregnancy and birth? Will I be able to find help? Will people believe me? You've heard a bit from me and Nicola, and now I want to play a clip from the BBC. We're going to hear from a few Black women about their experiences during pregnancy and childbirth. I've not had one person (laughs) that I can be like, oh, they were lovely. I'm so glad I had them during my baby journey because they've all just been pretty rubbish. It was very scary when I found out I was pregnant with Levi because I was only 20. So I had like my big birth plan where I was having a water birth and everything was going to be so beautiful. Then someone came and and then I remember saying to her, am I going to go, I'm going to have my water birth, right? And she was like, no, we don't have time for that. And I was like, what? She was like, no, we have to just get you get the baby born now the baby's coming we don't have any time so we get into a room there's a midwife she comes up to me and she says to me you're screaming I was like it hurts <laughs> like I don't know what else you want me to do I just wanted to go nobody I've actually come into contact with since I've been here has been nice I just want to go home I was in a wheelchair by the end of my pregnancy and I was in them I physically could not give birth and I was asking for a C-section and they refused all the way till the very end when his heartbeat dropped and I couldn't push him out. And three days in labour and then I had to end up having a C-section after all of that, which was really traumatic. It's a weird feeling when you're supposed to be so happy and things and then you just, it's overshadowed by how, by the treatment that you get afterwards. I hope this time round will be a lot better and I'll have a nice story to tell. As I mentioned, a huge part of Nicola's job is literally just support for people asking these kinds of questions, which makes me like, wow, first of all, Nicola's work is so necessary. And wow, second of all, I'm so mad that this is necessary. (laughs) Like, damn, shouldn't all doctors be trained to help their fat patients? So what does this advocacy and support work actually look like? A lot of the work that we do is around finding doctors that will support them. And one of the scariest things is even just like sending those emails to clinics, and you know, like asking, do you have a BMI limit? So I can do that work for people and kind of send their doctors emails about, you know, their boundaries and what they want to talk about and what they don't want to talk about, which, you know, for that first initial conversation, can be really helpful in kind of getting the the needle moving on these kinds of situations. 
And also the big the big thing that I've been able to do and help them with is provide them research that backs up their arguments. So there's like four main things that a doctor will kind of say for the reasons they won't help you. So they'll say something like, oh, well, if you just go and lose weight. So we've got a whole document around how weight loss is an evidence base and how it can have a really negative impact on your fertility. So they can have that conversation with their doctor. Then they'll say things like, oh, well, fertility treatments aren't effective. So we've got a whole document on why it is effective and how if you just give people a dose for their body, then it is just as useful. The outcomes are just the same. We then talk about the risks that fat people have said, oh, you know, we can't possibly give you IVF because you'll have to go under anaesthetic and that's super dangerous. So we give them the research for that, which shows that actually it's not dangerous. And if doctors were trained properly, you know, if they were given the right training and actually actually doing surgeries on fat people, then they would know what to do. And then the last piece of the puzzle often they talk about is pregnancy risk. So again, we go through what the actual risks are. We go through the reasons why these risks probably exist, i.e. weight stigma and weight cycling. We look at actually, does this risk even exist? Because so much of the research is done by people who have fat phobia and weight bias. So the conclusions they're making aren't actually very concrete. And then we say, you know, okay, well, if these risks do exist, here are the numbers. And then, you know, I say to them, you know, you can go in and consent to those risks, like knowing the full picture, knowing the benefits and the risks. It is your choice whether you consent to those risks or not. So I'm giving them all the information that hopefully they will then be going, able to go and have a conversation with their doctor in that room. And they've got everything, you know, all the ammunition they could possibly have to back them up. And sometimes it's not enough, but it's giving them the tools so they don't have to go away and do that research. Right. Like because it's traumatic like having to read through these research papers is yeah it's exhausting and but but even having these conversations is exhausting right like this is work that people should not have to do to access care yes exactly it sounds like so much hard and maybe even demoralizing work to do by yourself I mean, this is why I have a lot of fear about beginning to even think about entering the fertility world as a fat person. I haven't even started and the vibes are already bad. I think the first big hurdle that folks face often is even getting over the idea that they're worthy of receiving that kind of care and support. For me, when I was, so I didn't have a fertility journey as such, like I expected to throughout my teens and 20s but it was when I was pregnant with my first child that I had that experience of being told exactly what to do and that I wasn't allowed to have the birth plan that I wanted and it was really the first time that I researched around what the evidence showed around what my fat body was capable of and actually had a conversation with a healthcare provider around you know understanding that actually you know I get to make the choices around my body and it was up to me to decide how how I wanted my health care to look oh my god can we hear that last part again you know I get to make the choices around my body and it was up to me to decide how how I wanted my health care to look This is such an important moment and a huge shift for anyone, this kind of moment. Realizing that there are more options than you're maybe presented with at first is hard and scary. 
we as people, especially in marginalized bodies, are not taught to advocate for our bodies or the specifics of our healthcare. The medical industry sets up this idea that our fat bodies are proof we can't be in the driver's seat of our own health, proof of some failure that actually isn't real. I was definitely raised with a lot of respect for doctors and people with advanced degrees. I didn't think to question my doctor when she told me I was probably infertile. I still feel pressure to just nod my head to whatever the doctor says, and I still have to psych myself up when I'm about to disagree with the doctor. My palms sweat. My face gets red. It's hard. After the break, bodily autonomy at the doctor. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. And we're back here with me and Nicola. Remember, Nicola's pregnant with her first kid and realizing that actually she could disagree with the doctor. And that was really the first time I'd ever stepped out of that, you know, quote unquote, good girl persona of like doing something against what my doctor was telling me to do. And that was really powerful. But I think until people have that realization that they have that body autonomy and it's okay for them to stand up and ask difficult questions and, you know, ask for the treatments and tests that they need, that they can feel that it's all their fault, that, you know, they have that responsibility and it's really difficult to go against that advice sometimes because often we don't have fat-friendly providers there to, to help us through that. And that thing is a very classist thing, right? Being able to access like a private midwife or a doula or somebody specific because often if you have insurance, your insurance probably won't cover a fat-friendly provider, right? Because they're so few and far between. So it becomes a case of, you know, it's this information and this advocacy is gatekept for the rich and it's the the folks who can't maybe access that support who have been oppressed and marginalized further anyway due to maybe their circumstances and their body that will suffer the most absolutely marginalization here just begets more marginalization 
Navigating the world of medicine and healthcare is already expensive and difficult. And then it's a step further to find doctors specialized in fertility. And then you need still more money to hire an advocate to make sure the quote specialized doctor you're paying gives you effective information and treatment. That's just looking at fatness and class, financial privilege. It's another story for black folks, indigenous folks, and other people of color or people with other disabilities or any other intersection seeking reproductive health care. Quoting U.S. Representative Lauren Underwood, leader of the Black Maternal Health Caucus, quote, The factors that would protect other women, like being highly educated, having a high income, living in a safe neighborhood, going to prenatal appointments, having health insurance, all of these different things do not protect black women the same way they do other groups. End quote. We know that medical professionals are less likely to believe black women and less likely to take their healthcare questions and their pain seriously. Even if they have the means to hire a professional advocate like Nicola, it's still attempting to receive care from a position of grave disadvantage. In researching this episode, something that especially struck me was how broad reproductive justice is. We can be talking about abortion, prenatal care, raising children, or a whole bunch of other stuff, and it's all under that umbrella. Monica Simpson, executive director of Sister Song, speaks to this broadness in a clip I'm about to play for you entitled, Violence Against Black Women is a Racial and Reproductive Justice Issue. She's speaking on Breonna Taylor, the 26-year-old black woman senselessly murdered by Louisville police in March 2020. In this clip, Monica also describes an incident of police violence she experienced as a child, so trigger warning for that. Breonna deserved reproductive justice. She had already chosen the name of the daughter she dreamed of having, but all of those dreams were stolen from her the night she was killed. One year ago, Breonna Taylor was murdered by Louisville police officers who sprayed her home with bullets while she lay in her bed asleep. She was murdered in the same place where she manifested the dream she was working so hard to turn into her reality. But all of those dreams were stolen from her the night she was killed. She wanted to buy a home. She had already chosen the name of the daughter she dreamed of having. Brianna's life was violently stolen from her, a crime for which even a single police officer has yet to be held accountable. Justice for Brianna doesn't only mean accountability in the eyes of the law. Brianna deserved to live a long life, full of love, and she deserved the right to create the family that she wanted and to raise her children in a world where they could grow up without having to be afraid of violence and harm at the hands of police. Brianna deserved reproductive justice. I was only 12 years old when I first experienced excessive force by police officers who pepper sprayed me, my sister, and my cousin on the front porch of our home while a confrontation was taking place nearby. We were just young girls and we had nothing to do with what was happening. Yet at that moment, we were seen as threats that could only be handled with more violence. This form of harm, which is perpetuated by police officers and internalized by generations of Black women and girls, is a racial justice and reproductive justice issue. When Black women experience violent interactions with law enforcement, those experiences rob us of our personal and bodily autonomy. And they take away our ability to lead safe, healthy, and self-determined lives, including the ability of children to be just that, children. And it takes away our adult choices to be able to have children or not have children and to raise our families in spaces that allow them to learn and grow and thrive without fear. 
True justice for Brianna means listening to Black women, trusting Black women, and recognizing the leadership of Black women and organizers who have been on the front lines of the movement to create safe and sustainable communities in a world that honors, protects, and respects Black lives. This next clip is an interview with Jen Dierenwater, the founding executive director of Crushing Colonialism and citizen of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma. Jen is speaking on what reproductive justice means for indigenous communities. For me, as a native person who is indigenous to Turtle Island, Turtle Island is what we refer to as North America, I feel like I have to constantly remind people, not just of the issues that we face, but that we still exist. You know, I recently saw, I can't remember the exact statistic, but it was somewhere in the 60 percentile of Americans don't believe natives still exist. They think we're all dead. So for me, talking about reproductive justice and indigenous people is important on so many levels. It, it touches with you know, environmental issues and issues of environmental racism. You know, it's ableism that we deal with within our communities, the lack of health care, and it's how genocide has played out for us oh, yeah. in so many ways. You know, it's, it's not just the literal murder of our people. It's also the theft of our land, our language, our ceremonies, all of our ways. And that becomes a reproductive justice issue. You know, if we can't practice our own religions, how do we heal from colonization? How do we heal from the sexual assault and the forced and forced use of um, sterilization on our indigenous women and people body people? You know, it's a queer issue as well because before the white invasion, we a lot of our nations had multiple genders. You know, we didn't do the gender binary. My people didn't anyway. Yeah. So that's a very long-winded answer to why you should care about indigenous people and reproductive justice. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Now, these clips are only a small drop in the ocean of intersections between reproductive justice and racial justice, but it's a starting point if you, like me, are realizing this topic is so much bigger than you thought. All right, back to my interview with Nicola. We were talking about the factors that stand in the way of fat folks getting the care they need in the fertility sphere. I asked Nicola if she had any resources to make accessing care a little more accessible. So... I've started collating on like on a blog post a list of kind of clinics that have been supportive to fat folks. So I'm trying to like crowdsource some of the ways that people can access care. And obviously, you know, fat people aren't a monolith. We have vastly different experiences depending on our body size. So it's not it's a starting point. It's not going to be a quick fix to be able to, oh, this is the magic clinic that's going to help me. But at least it gives people a starting point. But if they can't access that, then it's about having those difficult conversations. It's about, you know, deciding what what things that you're going to be able to do. So there are lower cost clinics in the US that are fat friendly, that will do telehealth appointments. And for someone who's got PCOS, maybe all they need is an ovulation induction medication like Clomid or Letrozole. And, you know, there's a ways around it where you could have like a telehealth appointment and then access the prescription through your insurance company. So it's about being clever in how you access that care and also joining fat groups, you know, like joining Facebook groups with other fat folks in your area or in the US or whichever country you're in to get that kind of information and share that information. So people who've had successful 
situations with a different insurance company or in a different state can share what they did, how that worked. And we can kind of like, again, crowdsource that information to help as many folks as possible. I love that. We've put it in the show notes for you, along with a ton of other resources Nicola has on her website. Speaking of which, I had to ask about what Nicola calls her fat positive framework. Yeah, so this is kind of what I created from all the different tools and all the different ways that I'd found that people really needed support in this kind of arena. So it's based on four main principles or four main kind of blocks. The F stands for formulate, which is how to kind of figure out what your health and well-being goals are in a sense of not with weight loss, not with dieting, but you know where you are right now and where you want to get to. So it's not about you know, running a marathon or about, you know, having these extreme health goals. It's about really choosing what's important to you about your health and your well-being and taking really small baby steps to get there to support you. The A is for advocacy. So really learning those tools and those skills that we need in order to go in and have difficult conversations with our doctors, to have difficult conversations with our healthcare professionals. The T is for trust. So really beginning to deepen our understanding about our relationship with our body and what that means and how we can support our bodies and kind of rebuild that connection with our bodies that we might have been severed or cut in the past depending on our experiences of you know how we've been treated because of our body and also our relationship with food as well so kind of rebuilding that relationship with food and then the final element is around positive mindset so around really digging into beliefs that we hold about what our bodies are capable of Um, and what our bodies can do and what it means to be fat and want to get pregnant and looking and seeing how those beliefs show up for us in a daily basis, how they impact the decisions we make and whether they are serving us. And if they're not, maybe we want to tell ourselves a different story and how we go about doing that. Geez, sign me up. You can read more about the Fat Positive Framework on Nicola's website, along with her Fat Person's Guide to Getting Pregnant. And if you're really looking to read up, Nicola has a book out called Fat and Fertile. Yeah, so I mean, the book was written a couple of years ago now. So I have definitely built upon the body of work that I, that started it. But I really, really wanted folks to have a book out there that wasn't written for thin people. Because the only mention we ever get in books is oh, if you're overweight, lose weight or go on this diet or have this restrictive, you know, component to your lifestyle. And it was just, it made me so angry. And I know that for so many people I spoke to, they were like, well, there's no point me buying these books because it doesn't help me and I don't feel seen or heard and it doesn't represent me. So it's a mixture of my own journey. It's a mixture of some of the coaching tools that I use with clients. It's a mixture of research that I found And it's really just, I like to describe it as a hug in a book because it just, you know, so many people have said it just makes them feel seen. They relate to it so much because we talk a lot about just being a fat person and what that means and what that experience is and the thoughts you probably have going through your head. And, you know, it just makes people feel like they're not alone. And I think for fat people going on this journey it can feel so isolating because we don't talk about fertility anyway and for fat people they know that if they bring that up they are probably going to be met with well have you tried this diet or have you you know really thought about losing weight and that is so triggering and so 
scary that people just don't want to have that conversation so knowing that there are other people out there i think is so so important for folks i'm thinking again about what i said earlier that realizing you have more options than you thought can be scary it feels less scary when you get to see other people like you living out those options and it sounds like nicola hears a lot from people living out a lot of different options in the fertility world so yeah, so some people that I work with, I would say like half the messages that I get from people on Instagram are success stories. They're like, hey, I've been following you a few months. Thank you so much for giving me the confidence to try. We got pregnant really easily because the research, you know, we are told that, oh, it takes fat people longer to get pregnant. It takes fat people, you know, less fat people get pregnant. But the research shows just as many fat people get pregnant as thin people and the actual time that they figured out that it longer that it takes fat people is like one to two months months it's it's like one more cycle this made me feel really reassured that like yes it's all bullshit what i was taught that bodies like mine were probably infertile that i didn't have a chance that i wouldn't get to decide to have kids or not to have kids that my body had decided for me I asked Nicola, um, can you confirm it's total bullshit? Yeah, it's ridiculous. So yeah, so we absolutely have nothing to worry about. And we just have to remember that all bodies have fertility issues sometimes, right? Like this isn't just something that happens to fat people. And so it may be that you, you know, that you have difficulty getting pregnant, but until we are able to access the tests and treatments to figure out what is going on, then we won't know. And it's really important to remember that if you're in a heterosexual relationship, half the time it's a sperm problem, half the time it's, you know, it's a 50-50 game. It's not just, you know, we automatically assume if we're in a fat body that it's gonna be us that's the issue. And it's absolutely not. All bodies have fertility issues sometimes. Honestly, this should be the new everybody poops. There's nothing about fat bodies that is wrong for pregnancy. We are worthy of the fertility assistance offered to thin people automatically. I may still encounter fertility issues. I already know I have PCOS and some chronic illness, but I feel more prepared now and less just incredibly fearful of the process ahead whenever that comes for me. I'm so glad I got to talk to Nicola and to Dr. Friedman. I hope you, the listener, Fatmily, feel reassured and ready too if you're on that journey, or at least seen if you ever felt like your body was automatically dismissed in the reproductive world because of its size. Reproductive justice is for all bodies. That's why it's so tied up with fat justice, racial justice, trans justice. That's one big takeaway from last episode with Dr. Mae Friedman and this episode with Nicola. Another takeaway I want to emphasize is the disparity in reproductive justice for white people with uteruses versus people of color with uteruses. We cannot separate this movement from the history of forced sterilization of black and indigenous peoples, which currently lives on through prisons and ICE detention centers. So moving forward from our mini reproductive justice series, here's a couple things to do. Read up on forced sterilization, abortion access, and the forced separation of parents and children, some of the reproductive injustices being inflicted today on communities of color. 
We're looking a good ACLU piece for you in the show notes. Especially for our white and non-black listeners, share and give your money to resources like Fertility for Colored Girls, Sister Song, and Ancient Song, reproductive justice organizations run by and for people of color. Make good use of the Fat Posse resources we've collected from our brilliant guests. You can find these in the show notes or on our resource page at she'sallfatpod.com slash resources. Okay, I have one final thing to share with you. I didn't want to leave this episode thinking that the only story between Black and Indigenous folks and reproductive justice is the violence and racism of the reproductive world. It's an important piece of the story, but not the only one. As we talked about last episode, the name reproductive justice itself came from 12 Black women organizing for themselves and their community. Their legacy is important, and it's also beautiful. I thought we should hear some of that beauty, so now I'm playing us out on a clip of Monica Simpson, the executive director of Sister Song, speaking out on reproductive justice as her political home. I feel like this movement is my political home and it was waiting for me. I've done work in, you know, queer liberation work, and I've done work against the prison industrial complex and so many other things that are super important to me. But this was the first movement where I felt like I could bring all parts of me together. And I didn't have to separate anything to be fully present in this work. My uterus, you know, my queerness, my blackness, everything about who I am was centered and held sacred and was honored in this movement. This season, we're doing a Big Sister mailbag for our patrons every Friday. We're answering questions like, I'm fresh out of college and I hate cleaning my own space. How do you motivate? Wow, I'm a bad person to answer this because I am really messy. So my first question is, do you have undiagnosed ADHD? That would be my first (laughs) question. (laughs) So valid. Because if so, you need to use particular strategies. If you are more neurotypical or don't, have ADHD at least, then Yelly, what would your tips be? Um, My tips would be to use a timer. That's what gets me the most productive is just to set a timer for like 20 minutes, 10 minutes, and just clean whatever you can. And that's the only thing that you have to commit to is to do, you know, pick up five things off the floor, clean for 10, 20 minutes, put on a show on Netflix and clean for whatever the length of one episode is. And even if you don't get everything done right away, it'll at least be a little bit more clean than it was before. I follow this person on TikTok. Her handle is domestic bliss and she likes to describe cleaning as um, like in cycles. So if you like frame it that way as a cycle of like you're constantly going to be cleaning in some sense so thinking of it as all or nothing sometimes gets you stuck in that mentality whereas if you're you give yourself permission to not do everything all at once you're a lot more likely to actually do a little bit of something but yeah that's what works for me i follow someone who talks about like they just reset their kitchen at night and that's like what they get clean for the next day. And they talk about like mm-hmm. care tasks and stuff. Yeah, yes. I yeah. really like them. We'll link them in the show notes because I definitely had a lot of black and white thinking about cleaning because it's something that's hard for me. And also because perfectionism comes with ADHD a lot of the time. And so what Yelly's saying is absolutely correct. Uh, just little bits at a time. Also, like 
one thing I think that I felt right after college is that like you kind of have to get into your own groove of how you want to keep a house, which if you mm-hmm. are if you're a girl or you are AFAB, then you probably have your mom's voice in your head if you have come from a household with a mom, you know, like who who have you moms all have very strong opinions or whoever cleans the house has a strong opinion about how the house should be. You know what I mean? But you get to make your own choices. You can clean it like your parent or you cannot clean it like your parent. Like my mom's house is always so much cleaner and nicer than mine. And I don't have to be up to that standard because it, that would be really hard for me. And also mm-hmm. I don't mind living in a little bit more dirt. But yeah, that's one thing is that you'll learn over time, like what motivates you? Like, is it that you want to clean your bathroom so that you can take a nice shower? Like, and then you'll have your shower nice for yourself. You know, I don't find, I don't find like the house just needs to be clean because that's how houses should be to be very, like, that's not motivating for me, you know? I have to have like, oh, I want this room to be nice for myself or whatever. Yes. Well, also having a messier house is also not a moral failing, which I feel like a lot of us grow up being taught and believing. Definitely. Yeah. You got to find the right motivation for you. And like for sometimes for me, that's even it's not like having people over like, oh, the house has to be nice. But it's like, oh, I'll have a friend over to sit and talk with me while I clean up my room or something like that. Yeah. So those are our answers. If you liked hearing us big sisters answer your questions, join our Patreon at Team Paisley Moo Moo or above to hear full minisodes every Friday. And that is the episode. Shout out to Stylish Sista, where you can get the only SAF stickers on the market. You can find the All Bodies Are Good Bodies collab at stylishsista.etsy.com for a limited time, and I can't recommend enough that you do. How else will you meet family members out in the wild? Reminder that we have a voicemail box at 213-375-5023 and we want to hear from you. You can call in with questions, concerns, even birth stories, and we might even play your message on the pod. We don't have an Apple podcast review to read this week, so if you leave one now, I bet we'll read it next week. So true. Plus, rating and reviewing is a great way to help more people find the podcast and join the family. As always, shout out to our patrons. Thank you to Connie, Avery Corey, Francis Monroe, Maria Torres, Michelle Margulis, Rhonda Dines, AG, Anna, Mackenzie Wyatt, and Hannah De Tenorowitz. We could not make this show without you. Bye! Bye. <laughs> She's All Fat was created by me. Sophie Carter-Kahn, and April K. Quio, who graduated. We are an independent production. If you'd like to support the work we do, you can join our Patreon by visiting patreon.com slash she's all fat pod. When you pledge to be a supporter, you'll get all sorts of goodies and extra content. Please make sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's super important in making sure people find the show so we can grow the family. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to the stuff we mentioned today. And don't forget to send us your questions at fyi at she'sallfatpod.com. You can also leave us a voicemail at 213-375-5023 and we might even play it on the pod. Our episode ads are done in partnership with Acast. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, you can get started at acast.com. Our theme music was composed and produced by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs. Our website was designed by Jesse Fish and our logo is by Hannah Sanger. Lynn Barbera co-produced and edited this episode. Yelly Cruz is our magical junior producer. Our thin crony forever is Maria Vertel. I'm our host and co-producer. Our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter handles are at She's All Fat Pod. You can find the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Stay safe. We love you.
Josie, stop. I'm talking about racial justice. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.